Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. We're today, we are actually, even before Thanksgiving, we are launching our Christmas series that's going to carry us all the way uh, up through Christmas Eve Sundays. Christmas Eve falls on, on a Sunday this year. And so um, you actually, if you've been doing our devotions, you've already been in, we already launched the Christmas series in our devotions because they prepare us for Sunday. But today we're gonna be talking about the first message. And we, initially we were gonna call this series um, a very Matthew Christmas because we're gonna be rooted in, in the Matthew story. Um, but then we changed it. We reframed it to say, this, this series is gonna be called Good News of Great Joy. So if you look at our title slide, the left part of the slide, that's the banner that's over this whole series. Good News of Great Joy. And then each week we're gonna look at a specific aspect of who, who is the good news for? To whom is the message of the gospel great news? And so this week we're looking at uh, good news of great joy for the oppressed and for those who suffer injustice. And so um, I will give a, a little content warning for this morning specifically. This morning, uh, when we get to the reading, and we're gonna be reading a little bit from Genesis and it's kind of like, it's PG-13. And, um, and I'm not gonna be gratuitous about that or spend a lot of time on it, but we will have a brief moment where um, we're gonna be in that kind of PG-13 content. And we have to go there because it's part of the message. And so what I, I'll, I'll warn you before we get there, and if you've got young ears that you'd rather not explain things to, maybe that'd be a good opportunity for a bathroom break or something of that nature. Um, joining us online, I'll, I'll warn you as well, but that's just a little uh, heads up. But here's the reality. The Bible's honest. It's unflinchingly real about the world in which the gospel comes. As Jesus brings good news of great joy into a hurting world, the Bible's honest about the nature of that world. What is this world suffered? So we're gonna look at that. So as we begin the series, we're gonna be looking at the, um, the very beginning of the book of Matthew, literally the opening lines of the book of Matthew, which is actually the first book of the New Testament scripture, the New Covenant. And when you think about the very opening lines of a book, most authors will tell you that they spend great amount of time and are very deliberate about the opening line of their book, right? Like an inordinate amount of time, typically more time than anywhere else because a well-crafted opening line can function one of two ways. Either it can, can hook the reader in and awaken your expectations and your, your anticipation about the book. Or if it's not done well, it can actually have the opposite effect. It can actually cause you to lose interest before you even start the book, right? And so most authors will tell you, they spend a lot of time on that. Um, I have a, a favorite, do you have a favorite opening line to a book that is locked into your memory? I have one, it's, it's actually from the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's from one book in particular, it's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I, goes way back for me. My dad started reading these books to my brother and I when we were young, a tradition that I continued with my daughters. Um, I started them young, as you can see. And I think that book that I'm reading right there, that's not The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I think that's Prince Caspian. But Paige, who's the, the baby in pink right there, she just turned 19 this week. So it's been a minute. Um, but here's the opening line to the, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It goes like this. There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> and from childhood, I've always thought, what a great line. Like that, that intrigued me and made me want to read the book. When we come to Matthew and read the opening lines, it's not nearly as inciting, exciting or intriguing it doesn't invite, at least, I mean, I'll, I'll qualify this, for a 21st century American audience, when you read the opening lines of Matthew's gospel, it's kind of like, meh, you know, I don't know, maybe I'll keep reading, or maybe I'll skip over this part because this part seems kind of tedious. 
But here's what I want to say to, the, um, to, the, to Matthew's first readers. When Matthew wrote this gospel, and by the way, gospel, the word that we, t- when we talk about gospel, you know what it means, right? Good news. And it was actually a thing. Like when a, a new child was born that would be a future king, it's actually a, a Roman term. When a new child was born, a, a, an announcement would go out, a gospel, good news. A new king has been born or, or a new king has ascended the throne. And it was, it was called the gospel. And so we, we, the, the, the church, well, scripture, like takes that idea and says, okay, there's a new king. There's a new beginning, good news. So Matthew's good news and when he, the way opening lines of his book for a Jewish audience in the first century, it was incredibly exciting. Again, we read it and it's kind of like, eh. but when they read this, this was like, this was potentially life-changing. It was history altering. And it can be for us too, if we take the time to slow down as we're going to do and to actually consider not only what it says, but what it means. And the opening lines not just the opening verse, but the opening 17 lines that are so often skipped over mean something very deeply. So let's look at the opening lines in Matthew 1. It says, uh, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right there, I bolded three, three parts of that, three aspects of that for you. The word genealogy, son of David, son of Abraham, the opening or the, the, the original readers, Matthew's first audience, they would have been so captivated by this. They would have been hooked by this. Here, three parts. One, the genealogy, that word genealogy, it's actually the same Greek word as the word that we have in Hebrew that's Genesis. It means beginning. And it actually echoes back to the very first creation. To the first creation, it says, hey, a new creation is happening. Something has happened and it's a new creation. It's like what happened in Genesis 1, but it's altogether different. And it's an announcement that that's happened. So we have this announcement that there's a a watershed moment that is a, a new beginning within human history. And then these two designations, son of David, son of Abraham, these refer to two longstanding promises that the Jewish people and like specifically these readers that, that Matthew has, they've been waiting for this for a long time. The, the promise that, that there would be a descendant that would be the son of David, that was made by God to the people of Israel some approximately a thousand years previously. For a thousand years, they've been waiting for, I, I gave you the cross reference, it's 2 Samuel 7. But the promise was that a descendant of David would come and his throne would be established forever. They've, they've been waiting for that because the Davidic throne has had like starts and stops and some, a few good moments and a lot of pretty bleak moments. And by this point in human history, there is no one sitting on the, the throne of David. But there's this promise that someday a descendant of David will rise and he will be enthroned once again and his throne will last forever. And so Matthew's audience hears the son of David has come. Thousand years. Right? The next one, son of Abraham, that's a promise that harkens back about 2,000 years. Goes all the way back to the calling on Abraham. And the specific promise that, that they're waiting to, to see fulfilled is that there would be a descendant or descendants of Abraham through whom every family in the world would be blessed. That, that through this lineage of Abraham and his descendants that, that grow to be this great family, that every nation, every family, every tribe, everyone would be blessed. And at this point in human history, in Israel's history, that hadn't yet happened. So Matthew starts off and he's like, guess what? This, this thing we've been waiting for, this, this thing that harkens back to the first creation and is a new creation, a new beginning, it's happened. That's exciting. See why they're hooked? So Matthew continues down this line of thought. Here's where he goes from here and why it's pretty easy for us to skip it because then he goes on to list 42 generations of Jesus' family tree, his, his lineage. 
And um, we're gonna read, we are gonna read through those in a moment. We probably won't read all of them every Sunday, but since this is our kickoff, we'll read them this week. And um, before we do that though, I wanna talk just for a minute about how Jewish genealogies worked uh, and why they were important. So a couple of quick points, just kind of placeholders. First of all, genealogies served as one's resume. Okay, first, first person I heard use this language was Tim Keller. Uh, and, and here's the idea. Um, you know, it, think about today. If you're creating a resume, maybe you're applying for a, a job or you're running for some sort of political office. And so you need a resume that says, this is who you are, right? And what you've done. And because in 21st century America, we are highly individualistic, the things that you would list on your resume would have to do with you. Right? They would list where you went to school, which jobs you've worked, your accomplishments, awards you've earned, things that you've done that says, this is who I am, right? And not only would it be about you, but if you were writing a resume about your life, you would probably curate it somewhat, right? You would highlight things that looked good on you, and you might kind of omit things that were less favorable. I mean, think about your job history. Let's say you'd worked... Uh, for Apple for 10 years during the Steve Jobs years. Well, you'd put that on your resume. Worked for Apple during the Steve Jobs era, 10 years. The six years you spent working for Enron, <laughs> probably gonna leave that off, right? Because it doesn't look as good. Or, or any other you know, company you work for that, that has come into ill repute, right? You leave those things off. Well. The way they approached this was a little bit different. First of all, because they were not an individualistic society, they were a collective society. Your resume wasn't the things that you had done, it was all the people who came before you that you descended from. And so what they did, what they accomplished, those were seen as the, as the, the best indicators of what you would do, what you would become. And so you didn't list, oh, here's what I've done. You've listed, you list all of your family line. And in the same way that we might curate our resume to highlight important things, they would highlight the ancestors that did something impressive, something that, that would be favorable. And they might omit ones that were maybe less, um, less honoring, right? So that's the way they worked. Um, secondly, Genealogies were selective, they were not comprehensive. So in other words, it was not unusual to skip a generation here or there. If you were tracing your lineage, you might, as long as you were faithful to trace the, the family line and the legitimacy of the family line, you might skip a few stops here and there. And so for example, today, the one that we're about to read uh, begins with Abraham and works its way down to Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. And it's gonna span 42 generations. We know from other places in scripture, like Kings and Chronicles, that he actually leaves a few generations out. He skips over a few, maybe as many as like eight. And, and, and that's okay because that was, that was not uncommon. And they might do it for a couple of reasons. One is if you're curating the, the uh, resume or the family tree, you might leave off a few branches that you know, didn't look so good. But, but probably why he does it, and he's gonna to allude to this in the, in the lineage, is that he was making it memory easy. This was a, a, a culture that was not a written culture. It was more of an oral culture. And things were passed down by memorizing them and passing them on. And so it was a lot easier to memorize. Well, he's gonna put the, ge the genealogy of Jesus in three sets of 14. And three sets of 14 would be easier to memorize than one set of 50, right? It just kind of breaks it into a memory more memory-friendly capacity. So here's what, this, here's what this means though. Here's why this is so important. Matthew's been deliberate about the generations and the names that he does list. He didn't have to include any of them. He could have omitted them for the sake of expediency or because they tarnish the resume. So whatever he puts here is important. Lastly, genealogies in the patriarchal world of the first century trace the lineage through the males. So Luke 3, for example, which is the other family tree we have of Jesus, the other genealogy, Luke 3 lists actually 70 generations. Matthew lists 42. Luke lists 70. He does it actually in reverse order. He actually starts at Joseph and backtracks 
all the way to, not just to Abraham, but to Adam. And he tells 70 generations and every single one of them is male. There's no, there's no women. That was a more typical genealogy in first century Israel, in the ancient Near East. That was more typically how they were done. So those three points are really helpful for us to keep in mind as we read Matthew's genealogy. So number one, Matthew's presenting Jesus' resume. This is, this is Jesus' credentials. He's announcing a new beginning, son of David, son of Abraham, and this is his credentials. Secondly, Matthew has deliberately chosen the stops that he's made on the family tree. And third, Matthew's inclusion of some women. We're gonna see there's five women included in his genealogy. It's intrinsic to his purpose. He swerved way out of his lane. I want you to hear this. Matthew's swerving way out of his lane to include these women. So there's a reason for it and it's intrinsic to the good news he's trying to announce, right? So let's read it. Verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ, or anointed one. So, all the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. The trick to names is read them with confidence. No one knows if you said it right or not, except for Mike, who's on vacation this week. That's the trick, right? So you can see why, typically speaking, when we tell the Christmas story, we skip. How much is one generation? How much is one generation? Great question. Um, it, you know, we typically think of generations as 40 years, and big picture, that spans, um, I want to say that spans about 950 years. So... That's why, that's why we think there's probably, besides the generations we know that were left off, there's probably more than that. Yeah, so they, so yeah, so these people would have been contemporaries because grandfathers and so, but yeah, you're thinking about 40 years. So yeah, good question. You can see though why when we're telling the Christmas story and like, you know, December uh, 17th, I think, we're gonna have a Christmas play and the kids are, the children's ministry are gonna do a Christmas play for us, they're not gonna read the 42 names, okay? Because that's not super engaging. But Matthew chose this. He, he started with this. And it meant something to his first audience. So over the next several weeks, we're gonna, leading up to Christmas, we're gonna explore the stories of those five women, each one that are mentioned in the genealogy. Today, we're gonna be looking at Tamar because we know that their inclusion was deliberate and, and selective. And here's the question, big picture, we're asking the question, what, what does this person's inclusion tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the gospel? And if Jesus' arrival is good news and it's a new beginning, to whom is that good news for? Right? What does this story tell us? So 
Again, if we look back at Matthew 1, 2, and 3, we're just gonna look at that part because this is Tamar's introduction. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now that's, that's talking about the 12 brothers that became the 12 tribes of Israel, right? The, the brothers that sold their brother Joseph into slavery. It's that story right there. So Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. So this story is found primarily in Genesis 38. You can turn there. Uh, we'll be reading part of it, but let's review the background and I'll, uh, I'll warn you when we get to the PG-13 part. So uh, first of all, Tamar's story begins with Judah. As we just said, he was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, Judah was actually the fourth born of the 12. He was born to Jacob's wife, Leah, uh, the 12 sons, and actually there was one daughter as well, the 12 sons of Jacob actually didn't all come from one wife. They came from four ladies. Uh, Leah was the first wife and she had, um, I believe, six of the boys and the daughter. And so the fourth that she had was this guy, uh, Judah. And so Judah was the brother who came up with the idea to sell their younger brother, Joseph, to the Ishmaelite traders rather than just kill him. Okay, so one chapter before what we're gonna be reading today, this is Judah's contribution to the family line. The brothers all have this opportunity to take out their younger brother, Joseph, that they despise because they're so jealous of him because dad loves him literally more than them. And that creates some pretty negative family dynamics. And so they throw him in a pit, they lock him in a pit and they kind of imprison him, trying to decide how to kill him, how to dispose of him. And while they're trying to dispose of him, Judah gets this great idea. And he says, what if instead of killing him, we sell him to somebody else? That way we get rid of him forever and we make some money, right? He was strategic. And so that's what they did, which if you think about where that story leads, that's how Joseph ends up in Egypt how eventually the other brothers all end up in Egypt, how the brothers become a nation who is enslaved for 400 years of oppression in Egypt. It all starts with Judah. Good guy. <laughs> Judah, shortly after this happens, shortly after he um, negotiates the sale of his brother, he drifted away from the family. He married a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. And if you're a student of Genesis, which... Um, well, if you're a student of Genesis, as soon as that happens, the text doesn't say this was a good thing or a bad thing, but there should be kind of this like, you know when you're watching a show and, and all of a sudden this kind of deep baseline kind of creeps in and it's like the creepy music and you know, oh, something bad's about to happen. As you're reading Genesis, when it says that he drifted away from the family and married a Canaanite woman, there's kind of this deep sense of foreboding because that never goes well. Like going back to Abraham, it was always frowned upon to marry uh, a, a one of the foreign women. So we'll see how this plays out. Here's what we know is that Judah and his Canaanite wife have three sons. Their names are Er, Onan, and Shelah. So lastly, one last point before we actually read the story. Um, and I want you to hear this before you leave if you need to leave. Um, when considering biblical narratives like Judah's life or Tamar's life, we need to remember that Tamar's story is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, it tells us what did happen, not necessarily what should happen. So Jacob having children with four wives or two wives and, and their household servants. That's what did happen. It's not what should happen. It's not saying, now you have verses, guys, go out and do likewise, right? <laughs> It's, it's, it's saying this is what did happen. So it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Prescriptive scripture says this is what should happen. This is what you should do. Much of the, the book of Philippians that we just studied through was prescriptive. It was saying as, as people in the family of God, here's how you should live. That's prescriptive. But when we come to the stories of scripture, oftentimes they're just descriptive. They're just saying this is what happened. And it's up to the reader to discern, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, let's turn to Genesis 38. And now... It's a good time for a bathroom break if you need it. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Er, Er, 
to marry a young woman named Tamar. So Tamar is gonna be one of the local Canaanite women. Uh, but Er was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Er's brother Onan, go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. Okay, the story is gonna be a pretty one-sided story. It's told from the perspective of Judah. Here's what Judah did. Here's what Judah did next. It's not really told us so much about Tamar. We're not getting to hear, I mean, we're just told that the Judah arranged a marriage for his daughter, Er, to this Canaanite woman. But her life is just kind of happening to her. Choices are being made for her, right? Her life is happening. So we don't know any of the details. We know that Tamar finds herself in an arranged marriage to a guy that's not a good guy. He's in fact a bad guy. And shortly, at some point after being married to him, she finds herself not only in an arranged marriage to a bad guy, now she finds herself as a widow because the bad guy is so bad that God takes his life. Okay? Genesis just kind of skims over that, doesn't, doesn't offer us the details. It's just a summary. He's a bad guy, so God takes his life. And then her father-in-law gives her like property to her dead bad guy's husband's brother, little brother, for the purpose of having a child to carry on the name of the dead bad brother. Okay? This is a fun story, right? <laughs> Hebrew soap opera. As the world turns. Genesis 38, 9. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who had belonged to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. And so the Lord took Onan's life too. <laughs> and Tamar is once again a widow. Being a widow in our day, in any time in human history, any time, any place, being a widow is a difficult thing. There's, there's grief implications, there's, there's emotional implications, there's financial implications, there's, all, there's relational implications. Being a widow is a hard thing, especially, especially in the patriarchal world in which Tamar lived. Because without a husband and without children, she would have no provision, no protection. This is, this is the way society worked. This is the economy. So Tamar has spent her whole life treated, being treated as the property of another. She's been the property of a father who negotiated her arranged marriage to a bad guy. She's been the property of now two husbands who were both bad guys to the degree that the Lord took their lives. And culturally speaking, she's now damaged goods. And her fate is in the hand of her father-in-law, the father who gave her the dead bad guy husbands. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Sheila is old enough to marry you. Oh, good. You get the third one too, right? But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Sheila would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. This is like, this is like victim blaming. What we would call it today, we'd say this is victim blaming. Judah doesn't take ownership for the fact that his three sons, that he's raised three sons that are evil. He goes, well, it must be the woman they married that keeps, why God keeps taking their lives. So I'm, not, I'm gonna withhold this one, thinking, well, it's gonna happen again. It's not, it's not like she's like Canaanite black widow, but that's the, how he's operating. Okay, verse 12, some years later. So this is, the, this, the author, he's, he's telling big picture movements in time. Okay, they've got three adult sons from this Canaanite wife and two of them have, have died now. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Now, if you read uh, scripture, or if you just do a little bit of historical research, sheep shearing was kind of like the big annual party, right? It's, it's like uh, cattle branding in the, in the West. When, when, the, when this time of year came, this was a big party. It's when all, everybody kind of cut loose. You can see this like in, in 2 Samuel with, um, with uh, Nabal. He was 
big sheep shearing party. Everybody gets a little bit loose. Maybe there's some drinking. So Hire the Adulmite went up to Timna to supervise the shearing of his sheep. And someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timna to shear his sheep. And so what unfolds next is pretty dark. I'm just going to summarize basically the rest of this story, a few bullet points. Basically, years passed and Tamar realizes that she has no future. She has no hope of remarrying. And she has no children. She's been abandoned and shelved by the men who have control over her life and her future. Okay, so she's currently living as a widow in her father's household, which is not a long-term solution for her life because she's probably gonna outlive her family. So she has no hope. Hearing that her father-in-law Judah, now a widow himself, is going on a road trip, she dresses herself as a prostitute and positions herself on the roadside. Okay? Think truck stop. Judah's on his way to a party. He's done grieving his deceased wife. He's getting a little bit loose, anticipating the party. And he goes, stops, he's at a roadside, comes across a roadside prostitute. Judah, not recognizing Tamar as his neglected and widowed daughter-in-law, hires her as a prostitute. For payment, he promises to send her a young goat from the sheep shearing party he's en route to. And Tamar agrees to this, but she says, I need three personal items as collateral until you send the goat. And so she asks him for his signet or his seal for his uh, cord and his staff. So before we move on, let me just be clear. This is not a story of Tamar's desire. This is a story of her desperation, right? And unfortunately, sometimes she's been painted in history as people do read this story, as we, people read Genesis, she gets painted in a bad light. And the reality is this is, what she's doing right now is survival. She's not doing this because she wants to. This is not desire, it's desperation, right? Story goes on. After Judah leaves, Tamar resumes her life of widowhood and soon discovers she's pregnant with Judah's child, her father-in-law's child. Meanwhile, Judah attempts to send the promised goat to the roadside prostitute to retrieve his personal items, but the roadside prostitute's nowhere to be found. In fact, the locals say, no, there's never been a prostitute at that truck stop. And he kind of wants his stuff back, but he's also a little bit embarrassed by the whole thing. And so he says, you know what? Let's just forget about it. I don't, I'll get a new signet, new cord. And so he just moves on, forgets about it. Three months later, Tamar's pregnancy becomes public and Judah is outraged. He announces that his daughter-in-law, whom he's been withholding from Sheila, who's old enough to be married by now, should be put to death, should be actually burned to death for her immorality. And so that's what's happening. And before the sentence can be carried out, she sends a messenger to Judah with three items and a message. The message is this, the man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely, whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? At which point Judah acknowledges his duplicity and his hypocrisy and the fact that he was in the wrong. He says, she's more righteous than I. Now, think about this in the big picture. This is a Canaanite woman. Judah is from the line of Abraham, the family who's supposed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth by showing them what the God of Israel is like. Here's Yahweh. And he has wronged her multiple times over. He's not been a blessing to her right? Neither of his sons. So what does he do? He takes Tamar back into his household, rescues her from her father's household, brings her into his. He never sleeps with her again. And Tamar goes on to give birth to twin boys, one of which is Perez, of whom we just read about in Matthew's record of Jesus' family tree. There is your Hebrew soap opera for the week. Good news of great joy. So here's the question. Good news of great joy. Why does Matthew, after writing an opening line pregnant, see what I just did? An opening line pregnant with so much hope and anticipation, go on to reference this story in Jesus' resume. That's a really good question, right? Because he doesn't have to. 
It, just even writing a, a family tree, it's, it's normal to only trace the men. It's normal to skip a few generations. It's highly irregular to include women. He has swerved way out of his lane to say, this story, this is Jesus. You wanna know what Jesus' resume is? This one who's bringing a new beginning, son of David, son of Abraham. Here's his resume. Here's who he descended from. Why? Because Matthew sees Jesus' lineage as a whisper of what is to come. And so, you know, in Matthew's story, he hasn't even got to the birth yet, let alone Jesus' ministry, what Jesus will do, his teaching, his miracles, his death on the cross, his resurrection. He hasn't got to any of that. But on the front end, it's like he, he kind of tips his hand a little bit and gives us a little hint of what's to come. And for the discerning reading, reader, he's saying something here that he's just whispering about. Tamar's inclusion is just this whisper but it's something that Jesus is gonna say out loud. He's gonna proclaim it out loud multiple times during his ministry. The nature of the good news, the nature of the kingdom that he's bringing. Here's what I mean. Matthew four, so if you turn a few chapters over from Matthew one, Matthew four, right at the end of chapter four has this summary about Jesus' ministry. It says Matthew four twenty three. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. This is the banner over Jesus' ministry. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has arrived. And the implication is that the rule of God is breaking into the human experience. That God, again, like we talked about a moment ago, Jesus entered into our neighborhood and he brought a free gift and he brought with it the rule and reign of God. And up ever since Genesis three, creation has been subjected to a kingdom that's not God's, to a broken creation. But when he announces the kingdom of God, the good rule of a good father is breaking back in. The question is just how far does it reach? How expansive is it? To whom is it good news? So verse three, verse one through three, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. This is, this is Jesus after he's, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Good news, the kingdom of God is here. Respond to it. Receive the invitation to enter into God's kingdom. And then he shows people what it's like by healing people's diseases, by casting out demonic oppression, by healing every illness. That's an example of what he means by it. That's like show and tell. Jesus did show and tell. So then he says, he, so the crowds come to him and he gathers around and he says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God that's so different from what you've experienced up until now. So he describes it, verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain and he sat down and his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on, there's a whole bunch of what we, we call them the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor, in spirit, blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are the, the meek, the timid, who just generally get pushed around. The kingdom of God, there's blessing for them. Blessed are you when people persecute you for my name's sake. The common misunderstanding about those is that Jesus is naming conditions that either merit or deserve his blessing. As if to say, in order to get his blessing that we should aspire to be spiritually impoverished. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's like saying, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the spiritual zeros. If you, a lot of translations try to make sense of this by adding a little bit of words that's not actually what the text says. The text actually says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. And we try to like do some gymnastics with him. We're like, well, he means if you recognize that you need him, if you recognize your poverty, then that's what it means. But that's not what the text says. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. Jesus is not suggesting his followers should seek those conditions as a way to secure his blessing. What he's announcing is that his kingdom and the goodness he offers is so expansive that it includes people and conditions and circumstances that would seem to be otherwise hopeless. That's how wide open, that's how expansive the blessing of God is that the spiritually bankrupt are blessed. Tamar, Judah, 
Judah's wicked kids. Dallas Willard, has, he treats this passage extensively in his book, Divine Conspiracy. I just wanted to read one quote to you about the Beatitudes from Dallas Willard. He says, no one is actually being told that they're better off for being poor or for mourning or for being persecuted and so on, or that the conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God or man. What they are is explanations, illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. They single out cases that provide proof that in him, the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond all human hope. What Matthew's doing when he includes Tamar is a whisper of what Jesus says out loud multiple times. The kingdom of God, blessed are the poor in spirit. For the kingdom of God can belong to you. Tamar's inclusion is not a celebration of her circumstances or of how she responded. It's an announcement of how wide open the kingdom of God is. It's a declaration of just how good the good news is. All of these stories that are woven into Jesus' genealogy, his family tree, many of them have dark or disturbing twists. But here's the thing. It's the honest and unflinching gaze into the darkness that helps us to recognize and appreciate the light. A light has come and it's good news. It's such good news that it's good news for people that we would have thought were hopeless. People that would have thought of themselves as hopeless. People rooted in shame. People broken. It's good news. That's how good the good news is. So as we close with just a little bit of application, worship team's gonna come back and just provide a little bit of music to help us just be alone with Jesus. This is all about relationship to Jesus. This is the invitation that we would bring ourselves as we are and find the good news for us. And so I, I put two questions here, two application questions. One is, have you ever been the victim of injustice? And let me unpack that a little bit. Have you experienced something like what Tamar experienced where others made choices that you had no control over and they deeply impacted and harmed your life? Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a spiritual figure. I mean, here we have this story. Judah's supposed to be the guy that knows God and reflects him to Tamar. Maybe you've been harmed by somebody in spiritual authority. Those stories are certainly not uncommon. Maybe you've been harmed by something uh, a parent chose or a sibling or an aunt or an uncle. But if you've been the victim of injustice, Tamar's story is for you. It's to say that God sees you. He doesn't celebrate the circumstances that happened to you, but he saw them and he was present. And he's in the business of redemption. He's in the business of taking broken things and making beautiful things out of them. That's why he swerves out of his lane to include Tamar in his story. We sang a song this morning, and we sang actually a couple songs. I wrote down one of the lyrics. The last song we sang, we, we sang this. We sang, the darkest night, you can light it up. That's Tamar's story. The darkest night, you can light it up. If you've experienced injustice, if you've experienced violence of some kind from people that, well, if you've experienced that, Tamar's story is it's for you. Or have you ever felt so desperate for survival that you did something you would have not otherwise not done? I don't think Tamar was proud of what she did. I've, in fact, I, I suspect that this is the most shameful moment of Tamar's life. Recorded in scripture for thousands of generations. <laughs> But she did that out of desperation. This morning, I, just, I believe that there are people here, as I was just praying through our application this morning, 
I believe there's some that live with deep shame over things you've done, over things you've chosen that maybe they were response to the pain of your life. Maybe they were response of desperation, trying to cover pain. You know, a lot of, a lot of our addictions are us trying to numb our pain somehow. And so maybe you're dealing with that. Maybe you're dealing with addictions that are actually just trying to cover the pain of injustice that you've suffered in living in a fallen world. Good news. Good news of great joy. Jesus' kingdom is here for you. And today can be the beginning of a new beginning. New hope, clean slate. New beginnings, new cycles, new hope, right? New beginnings. Would you stand with me? If you're here on campus and you're able, would you stand? I wanna give the invitation. First of all, if, you know, Dallas in, in that quote, he said, all of this is available through personal relationship with Jesus. Jesus came and announced the good news was here, but he said, you need to respond to it. And so if you're here this morning and you've never responded to Jesus, you've never invited his, him into your heart, here's the message of Tamar, is that the gospel is for you. No matter how you feel about yourself, no matter how you feel about yourself today or your past, no matter what's happened to you, Jesus came into this world for you. He sees you and he loves you. And what he wants from you is all of you, as you are. The good, the bad, the things you're proud of, the things you're ashamed of. He wants you as you are. And his promise is to enter into your life and make you a new creation. To invite you into the new beginning that he has started at his first coming and he's promised to finish. So if that's you this morning and you don't know that you've ever entered into a personal relationship with Jesus, if you have, you know it. But if you haven't, why not start today? Why not make this your Christmas present? Is to give yourself to Jesus and receive his gift of new life for you. So if that's you, we're gonna do some more prayer this morning just over various needs, but I wanna start with that. If that's you, would you just raise your hand right where you are? And we just wanna pray for you right where you are and celebrate with you. Here's the thing, not most people in this room are gonna raise their hand because they've already done this at some point. Most of us have made this choice at some point where we responded to Jesus' goodness, to the good news of great joy for me. But if you haven't, and you want to do that today, it's just a step of faith. It's just saying, God, I want what you have. have some hands back here. If you're near somebody who has their hands up, would you put your hand on their shoulder and just pray for them? Our prayer team is going to bring just a little kind of welcome to the family packet for you. We just spend the next few minutes praying. Here's the prayer. Lord Jesus, I know, I know that my life has not gone perfectly, that there's things that have happened to me and ways that I've lived that are not pleasing, that are not your best for me. And Lord, I ask that, that what you want on the cross, the forgiveness of sin and the freedom and new life and new beginning, I want that today. Starting today, stretching throughout eternity. Thank you that you came for stories like Tamar, that you don't pull back from that, that you don't hide that. Do you invite us to come to you as we are? So Jesus, for those who are responding for the first time, we, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you come upon them, make your home in them, make them a new creation, be enthroned in their lives, be at home in their lives. And would you make them your own? Secondly, I do feel like this morning just touches on issues of, of shame and maybe bitterness. If you've been wronged, there's a good chance that that's, there's some roots in your life that 
continue to control you. Maybe the injustice is over, but there's still things that, are, that you're living out of, stories you're living out of, patterns you're living out of. And Jesus wants to bring you freedom today. He wants to bring freedom from habits. So this is an act of repentance to say, God, here's how I've responded to the pain in my life. I've numbed it these ways and I know they're not pleasing to you. And today I renounce and repent of that and I ask for new ways to respond to this life. So there's repentance that needs to happen today, but there's also just healing. And I sense this morning is a morning for healing. If you identify with Tamar because you feel like you've been oppressed and beaten up and spent. God just wants to bring love into your life today. He wants to proclaim love, his love over you. And so this morning, if, if you're here and you wanna to respond to any of that, I invite you to just raise your hand, again, right where you are, because we're just gonna ask one another to pray over each other. This is, this, is the body, this is the body ministering to one another. This is what we do. We pray with each other. We agree with one another. And so if somebody has their hand up right now, you know, prayer team, you're welcome to move around the room to go to people where hands are up. If you have your hand up, would you put it up to where our prayer team can see you? We'll come find you where you are. There's a hand over here. There's a hand over here. And we just want to agree with you that as you respond to the message of Christmas, the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to appropriate that. We want to take in that good news and make it real in our lives. So Lord Jesus, we do, we pray. Today, would you break cycles of addiction? In your power, in the power of your kingdom that you brought to bear, would you break cycles? Would you teach us new ways of responding to the, the pain of this world? Would you speak love and would you remove shame? I pray for those that have lived under a cloak of shame, for things that happened to them or things that they've done. God, would you lift that today? In the name of Jesus, we lift that shame and we say Jesus carried that away at the cross you are a new creation. In Christ, all is forgiven, all is made new. And you don't have to carry that shame anymore. Jesus, would you break the power of that? By your Holy Spirit, would you break the power of shame? Thank you for moving towards our shame. Thank you for redeeming Tamar's story and including it in your own. God, you, you make beautiful things out of the darkness you do that again? We're just going to do a, a soft close today and um, let you go get your kids. And we've got a couple meetings. We've got our, our uh, newcomers lunch. We've got our Whittier project meeting in the chapel. If somebody's getting prayer, if you need prayer right now, you're welcome to just stay here and pray with each other. Apart from that, what are we going to do? We're going to go out and make the invisible God visible. Thanks, church. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.